Today we want to do part two of a study we started last Sunday, which was focusing our attention for a new year. There is an insert in your bulletin if you'd like to make use of it. For those that are with, were with us last Sunday, we had the opportunity to look at uh, the example of Christ in the same section. And now we want to look at some of the implications that are there for each of us as we face this new year. There is an insert, as I think I mentioned in your bulletin, if you'd like to make use of it to take some notes or to follow along. Ewan, do you like to be happy or would you rather be sad? And you're not different than everybody else here. But for all of us, are there things that happen to us that aren't very happy? Sometimes they're sad. And what we want to talk about today is what God says about how to be happy all day. Even like we just sung, all the way my Savior leads me. The reality is that you and being happy is not wrong. It's important, but there are ways that we can be happy even when the things that happen to us should make us sad, and that's what we want to study about today. So let's listen carefully. Let's uh, pause in prayer and ask the Lord to help us as we study in his word And then when you go home, you can find out if mom and dad listened to what was said, okay? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for a beautiful new day. Today is the gift you've given us. May we appreciate it and may we use it not only for our best good but your glory. We thank you, Father, for your precious word that it really is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We thank you that you, as the supreme author, are here with us as we study, and how I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word, that your spirit would prepare our hearts to receive your truth, and, Father, that you would be pleased to accomplish eternal good in each one of us, for the glory of the one who we wish to honor and in whose name we pray, even Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Just thinking about the beginning of a new year and listening to people talk about their resolutions, what they want to accomplish. And it made me reflect on a very fundamental and important question. And that is, why do you do what you do? And really, there is nothing more important for us as we face a new year than to recognize that some of our motives for what we do and why we do them may not necessarily be the best. Some of the things we do when we have the opportunity to choose 
is because that's what we want to do. And that's what we enjoy doing. But every one of us knows there's a lot more to life than just getting to do what we want to do and we've decided to do it because we've enjoyed doing it. Monday morning, there are a lot of sad faces as people have the thrill of going into the workplace or students getting up to go to classes that they don't necessarily find the most enjoyable that are taught by some of the most boring people to ever come into this world. Why do you do what you do? Sometimes we do that because we think it'll impress people. Sometimes we do the things we need to do because we're obligated to do them and they have to get done. But none of those reasons are really valid when it comes to our walk as a child of God living in this world. A work by J.I., or excuse me, by John Piper called Desiring God, he talked about the fact that Christian people ought to find enjoyment and pleasure in all that they do. And in that work, he said, we have a name for those who try to praise when they have no pleasure in the object. We call them hypocrites. This fact that praise means consummate pleasure and that the highest end of man is to think deeply of this pleasure was perhaps the most liberating discovery I ever made. What Piper is saying is God's people ought to be deriving pleasure in what they do. And more importantly, pleasure in the God that they worship. I think that's a very valid point. But while I have high regard for John Piper, and I appreciate all that he is saying, the bottom line is if you're living with a reason for pleasure, as your ultimate objective and motive, it is still very selfish. Why do you do what you do? And what is it that ought to motivate you in all the affairs of life, what's on your plate, what you're required to do each day, in order that you can say with Fanny Crosby, all the way my Savior leads me, what have I to doubt or to fear? The reality of something more that all I'm looking for is personal pleasure and happiness because there is a type of pleasure there is a type of happiness that goes beyond that. And that is what Paul is saying to the church at Philippi as he addresses the Christian life. And I would like you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 that we can reflect 
on these important truths for our own lives and especially as we orient our focus as to what we would like to obtain, what we would like to do, what is motivating us in this new year. Now, if you remember, the book of Philippians was really stirred or uh, caused by Paul saying, you know, I need to write a thank you note to the church at Philippi. It was a church that had a genuine concern for the well-being of the apostle Paul. And he makes it very clear that they had repeatedly sent financial aid to help him in his ministry, and he was very appreciative of it. And he makes it clear at the end of the book that he wants them to know he's not writing this thank you note so it becomes kind of a backsided appeal to get them to give him more. Because he says, you know, I've learned to be content in whatever state I'm in. Now, please remember, that doesn't mean he was content when he was in Texas and he was content when he was in New Jersey. Now, what he's talking about, he was content in whatever his circumstance was. That there was a personal pleasure that Paul experienced, even if he was in the Philippian jail. There was a personal experience, the Apostle Paul, uh, personal pleasure the Apostle Paul experienced, even when he was shipwrecked. There was a personal pleasure the Apostle Paul experienced, even when he was rejected, abused, and criticized because of his walk with Christ. Paul said, I have learned to be content in whatever state I am in because you know why? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul wasn't living for emotional highs. Paul wasn't needing somebody to pump him up and to make him feel good. His sense of worth and value was found in his relationship with God. And when Paul describes the Christian life in the book of Philippians, he tells us there is something that ought to permeate all of your activities and your character. Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord always. And for you, those of you that are a little slow on the uptake, again I say, rejoice. Paul begins this book by saying he makes every prayer to God for the church at Philippi with joy. He speaks about the fact that he's hindered from preaching the gospel. And some individuals are now preaching it thinking, we're going to get at him. He's going to be upset by the fact that we get to do this and he can't. And guess what he said? You know, I still rejoice because Christ is being preached. The Apostle Paul said, I don't know what the answer to my circumstance is going to be. I'm here in prison. It may mean that I'm going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. And even if it is my life being poured out as a sacrifice on your faith, in this I rejoice. Paul's pleasure was not in his happenings, was not in his circumstances, and Paul's life is an example for us. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be happy. God's people should be joyful people. It's intricately woven into the Christian experience. And if it is to be part of our experience, then we recognize, as Paul does so skillfully in this short little epistle, 
the concentration, the focus in your life is not on yourself. The concentration and focus in your life is not on what's happening to me now. The concentration and focus in your life is not on this is what I need to be happy. The concentration and the focus on your life must be Jesus Christ. Not only did he say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, chapter 4. He also said in chapter 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said in chapter 3, you want to know what drives and motivates me? That I may know him. Here he was. A man who had walked with the Lord for many years and he wanted a deeper knowledge and experience of his relationship with God. And then in chapter 2 he said, and here's your example on how to live. Have this attitude, this mindset, this worldview, this philosophy of life which was also in Christ Jesus. And the reality is that to have that real pleasure That real joy is when you're not living for your own pleasure, but seeking to bring pleasure and benefit to others as was exemplified in Jesus Christ. How did Jesus say it? It's more blessed to what? Give than to receive. And somehow in the American church, we've missed that. Everything we're doing, we're trying to do to see what will I get out of it. I didn't get much out of that time of worship. Well, what did you put in? You invest little, then you'll collect little. You're not here to get something. What have you come here to do? You have come here to worship the God who is worthy to be worshiped. And that means you are giving him the acknowledgement, the praise, the adoration that he deserves. And what is it that he deserves? Ah, Paul would say to the Romans, I beseech you by the mercies of God that you do what? What is your reasonable act of worship? That you present yourself as a living sacrifice to God, holy and acceptable to him. You give yourself to him, all that you are. As we look at this book, the Apostle Paul is making it very clear that God's people, following the example of Christ, having Christ as their focus, will produce a joy that they have never experienced before that overrides whatever circumstance they may find. Now, how does he begin? Well, he begins by saying in verse Uh, three and four, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also on the interest of others. Have this mind in you. Now, when Paul began this discussion, he made it very clear that the concern that he had for them was that they would experience unity and harmony in their relationship with one another. Because I want to tell you, discord is not enjoyable. And for the people of God, we have a biblical divine basis 
for unity and harmony with one another. Notice he said in verse 1, if there is therefore any encouragement in Christ. There's no encouragement in Christ, is there? I mean, your sins have been forgiven. You're acceptable to God. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. What a foundational truth. Being a child of God is an encouraging experience. Not only that, he says, if there's any consolation in love, when you hurt, when you're being bothered, when a brother in Christ comes up and embraces you and says, I can understand what you're going through, I'm here with you. And even more than that, as Paul would write to the Corinthians, blessed be the uh, God of all comfort and the Father of mercies who comforts us in any of our afflictions to the end that we might comfort others. The reality that he brings peace within that troubled soul. Not only that, but he says, if there is any fellowship, that is partnership, a union, a relationship with the Spirit, is there not the indwelling Spirit of God in God's people? He is talking about foundational truths that are true of God's people. If there's any affection and compassion... God's people have a genuine concern for one another. It's the reality that he has bound us together. And even some of our hymns express, blessed be that tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. Then he says, therefore make my joy complete. How? By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Unity among God's people is a delightful experience. That doesn't matter whether it's in the church or it's in the home. I mean, if I read the book of Proverbs, it becomes very clear that Solomon knew that when you had a home that was full of anger, hostility, frustration, nagging, not getting along, it was anything but pleasurable. He said, you're better to leave it, sit on the roof instead of being in that kind of a household. When there is unity and harmony in the home, within the church, it is a delightful experience. And God's design is to break down every barrier that separates individuals into cliques and divisions that we are one in Christ. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, well, consider that you're a member of the body and no member of the body can tell the other member of the body, I'm more important than you. But we subtly get into that situation and that's why he says, don't make your outlook on life to be selfish. You're not doing things because you want to get something out of it. Don't make the way you interact with others to be through empty conceit. I'm the important person. Things revolve around me. Instead, your need, your well-being, your situation, you as a person are far more important than me and how it might prove to cause me some kind of discomfort or sacrifice. 
I'll do it when it's convenient. I'll do it when I think it'll benefit me. That's not the mind of Christ. Christ did not keep clinging to his honor and reputation and divine prerogatives. He set them aside. And he was found in what position? Your kind of position. My kind of position. He was found to be a man. Didn't cease to be God. But as the God-man, he saw his circumstance now living among creatures. And what is your calling as a creature? Not my will, but yours be done. Not living for your own glory, but for the glory of God. Have this outlook in life. That you put no boundary in your self-humiliation. Your personal inconvenience. To be of benefit and blessing to others. Just as is true of your Lord Master and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because if he put a limit, none of us would be here today. He didn't care what people thought of him. He didn't care what it cost him. He endured the wrath of the Father that you and I will never taste of his displeasure. Have this outlook in life. That individual, my brother, my sister in Christ, that individual of whom I'm concerned about whether or not they know the Lord is of greater importance than me, my agenda, my needs, and what I want. And what needs to motivate me in a new year is how can I, in the hand of the Lord, be an instrument of bringing his blessing into the life of someone else. Regard the needs of others as more important than your own. So the first thing we see is that in our commission with Christ as our example is to be unconditionally seeking the well-being of others instead of living for myself. Now jump with me over to verse 12. The second thing in this commission. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first thing that we see in this injunction is it's given to what people? Not those outside of Christ. Paul is talking to those who have professed faith in Christ. Paul is talking to those who have been born again by the Spirit of God. Paul is talking to those who are the objects of love of the Father and therefore of the Apostle Paul as well. My beloved brethren. And as he addresses them, he makes it very clear as to what constituted their way of living each day. What was it? They were obedient people. Obedient to what God said they should do. 
And as obedient people seeking to do what God said they should do, Paul said, you didn't just kind of toe the line when I was with you. You were even more concerned about being sure you did what God wanted you to do when I was absent. And as individuals who have a desire to do what pleases God, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there's a lot of ideas that you can read about in different commentaries as to exactly what this means. But the first thing that it does not mean is don't seek to gain merit so that you'll be saved. Or it doesn't mean don't seek to gain merit so that you have a higher standing before God. It's not working for something, but notice he says, work it out. Bring it into experience and in reality. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, with the kind of respect and devotion to God that he deserves. Now, what is my salvation and my deliverance? What is God's intended purpose for my being in even making me a trophy of his grace? That you'd be conformed to his son that you'd be conformed into the image of the Lord. And that's what the Spirit of God is now doing in every one of God's children. So when he says, work out your own salvation, what he is saying is, have the utmost priority in your life to be more like Christ. And to understand it won't happen because you follow some set of regulations and say, if I do these five things, I'll be more like Christ. That's called works. It is something far greater than what you can accomplish on your own. In fact, the Bible from beginning to end says very clearly, if you are a just individual, if you are a righteous individual, you shall live how? By faith. The Apostle Paul made it very clear, the way you've begun the Christian life is how you should live the Christian life. Book of Galatians. You begin by faith, you're not now made perfect by works. In other words, you continue to depend upon God to do a transforming work in you as you seek to walk in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, if that is true, what is my salvation in this context that has to do with Christ's likeness? To become utterly dependent upon God. Not your will, but his. To be as a human being, to recognize the highest calling in life is to be the servant of the Lord. To be willing to say, whatever you have for me, Lord, not my will, but yours, be done. And to not have aspirations of how I can impress others because of how spiritual I am or what good, great spiritual works I do. The bottom line is, is that where personal pleasure is found is where, like Christ, I recognize my calling today is to be a servant of the Lord. My calling today, regardless of what it costs me, is to be the instrument in his hand 
to bring benefit and blessing to others. And so it is a self-humiliation, like was true of Christ, to willingly go through whatever God appoints for me as the way to be an instrument of blessing to others and to bring glory to his name. But there's another ingredient to it. And I have to confess it's one that I don't like. You notice what he says in verse 14? Do all things without grumbling. I mean, there's certain things we have a right to grumble about, isn't there? We may not like the way the government's acting, so let's grumble about it. We may not like the weather, so let's grumble about it. We may not like how we're doing different things, so now we'll dispute with one another about it. If I really have the mind of Christ, whatever distasteful thing may come, I want to hear God say of me, this is one of my children in whom I am well pleased. It means that if it's studies I have to do for school, if it's a new work day that I have to undergo, if it's an opportunity to take care of people with needs that seem to be overwhelming, do all things without murmuring and complaining. Boy, what a revolution in our homes. What a revolution in our churches. What a revolution in our relationships with others. If I recognize my spouse, my children, my parents, whoever it is, are more important than I am, and my life is one of self-sacrifice to benefit them, and not that I am doing it grudgingly, but to recognize it is a privilege in the plan and purpose of God to be used that way to bring his blessing to others. Do all things without murmuring and complaining that you may prove, you may demonstrate that you're the children of God without reproach. What characterizes the unregenerate world? What characterized the nation of Israel as God brought them out of Egypt? Murmuring and complaining, nothing was exactly right. Well, let me tell you, this sinful world will never be perfect. That's why God's gonna change it when Christ returns. But I have the empowerment of the Spirit of God within me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not just to get through it. Not just to put up with it. But to cheerfully delight in God. In all that I do. You want a resolution for this new year? No more murmuring. No more complaining. Read the Gospels. Look at all the times Jesus murmured and complained. It's not there, is it? And yet he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, misunderstood, accused of being demonic, and eventually rejected by the people to whom God had made the promises and suffered the horrific death of crucifixion. Why? Because 
I have come to do your will, O God. My life, my highest calling, is not a ministry that I'm engaged in. It's not the opportunity to evangelize others. See, I can do all of these righteous, good things, and they still are worthless. Isn't that what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13? I have a spiritual gift. I can speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love. I'm just a noisy gong, an irritating noise. I can have the gift of prophecy. I can understand all mysteries. But if I don't have love, it benefits me, or excuse me, I am nothing. And though I give my body to be burned, I make all of these self-sacrifices I'm looked upon by the world as one of the greatest humanitarians ever. But if I don't have love, it profits me nothing. So if you're thinking the mark of your spirituality is what type of ministry you're doing or how you're exercising your gift or who you're talking to about Christ, not minimizing the value of any of those things, Recognize there is something far more important than that. And that is that you find real joy and happiness in doing what God called you to do today. And when it'll be seen is when you're treated like a servant in how you respond. Here, my Lord, use me. And sometimes that means extreme difficulties, people misunderstanding, people mocking, people wanting nothing to do with me, losing things of the temporal world. But like Paul, you can say, whatever things were gained for me in the temporal world, I count them but rubbish for the far surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. What I need to comprehend is what I am and the attitude I have is more important than what I do. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he talked to them about their fascination with spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He made it very clear that there is one Lord who has gifted each member of the body of Christ. And there is one Lord who has determined how that gift will be used by each member of the body of Christ. And the other thing he said is there is one Lord who determines what kind of impact your giftedness will have in the lives of others. It's all under his control. And the real issue isn't how many people see me, know me, or what's impact, what kind of impact I have. But really the bottom line is, is Christ seen in me? May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. May they forget the vessel and see only him. 
And having that attitude is going to bring unity and harmony in the body of Christ as we trip over one another trying to help one another, to care for one another. And Paul said, if you act this way, you'll make my joy complete. There is no father that enjoys watching his kids squabble with one another in their home. There's no leader of a church that likes to have strife and envy and factions and divisions and, you know, arrogance and I got to be important. Everybody has to be stroked in a local church. It's not a pleasurable experience. But what is even more impressive When Paul says this kind of response and having the mind of Christ brings joy to him is the recognition that Paul was speaking for someone else. That kind of harmony, that Christ-likeness in the children of God brings delight to God the Father. And there is nothing more important than recognizing how I am living today is delighting the heart of God. God points out people who did, doesn't he? David, not sinless, but he was a man after my own heart. Job, a very righteous man who still had to be refined. Abraham, shall I hide from Abraham, my friend, what I'm about to do? Do you know what that tells us? God's got an opinion of you. He's got an opinion of me. And I want to tell you, nothing would delight my heart more than to know that God's opinion of me was well done. Good and faithful servant. And the more the attitude of Christ, not looking to exalt myself, but to be an instrument in the hand of God to bring blessing to others, is a reality in me, the more I'll be delighting my Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your truth. I just pray that your spirit would take the words that Paul addressed to the Philippians and stir my heart and stir stir the heart of my brothers and sisters in Christ to desire more than anything else the pleasure that we can receive and experience of knowing that we are bringing pleasure to you and delighting the heart of our God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, we pray. Amen.